Once you find that, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. If you don't know where it is, I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to look it up in the concordance, amen? I don't even know, know what uh, reference point to tell you. Find uh, Micah and look one book to the right. So uh, that's about as difficult. Nahum chapter 1. How many of you here tonight can vividly remember a sermon preached out of Nahum in your life? Anybody? I don't know that I ever have. I've heard them out of Micah, Malachi, and Zephaniah. I've heard lots and lots of sermons out of Jonah. But I might be listening to, I might have to listen myself if I want to say I've heard someone preach a sermon out of Nahum. But it is a, um, it's a fascinating book and we're going to, we're going to dig into it tonight. Nahum chapter 1, let's look at the first five verses here. It says, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, adversaries rather, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth in Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him. And the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. The title of the message this night, the study tonight, is Nineveh's Payday. Nineveh's Payday. Let's pray. God, I ask tonight that you help us as we look at these three short poems of Nahum, Hebrew poems, and uh, Lord, you uh, help us to make sense of them. And Lord, as we look at a pagan Nineveh, and we consider that it was the capital of uh, Assyria, and Lord, how that you dealt with Assyria and in your time and in your way. Help us to remember that you deal with all sin. While you are patient in the process, eventually you uh, hold those who are guilty accountable. And may that be a reminder for us tonight that one day, a day of judgment, a day of reckoning is coming to each of us. May we live with that thought in the forefront of our mind each and every day. Give me clarity of mind. Give us attention to detail tonight. I know there are many weary bodies. Most everyone here has worked today and has exerted themselves. We're at the end of the day, and so bodies are fatigued, minds are fatigued. But give us that energy. As Brother Mark prayed earlier, help us to push out the uh, that which is bothering us, that which is distracting us, and help us to focus in. May we get something tonight that helps us for the rest of the week. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Tonight's study will take a closer look at the downfall of the nation of Assyria. So, um, up front, let me tell you what Nahum means. The name Nahum um, means compassionate. It also means full of compassion. Full of compassion. Now, Nahum is one of the, I believe it's the only name that was not translated from Hebrew into English. Nahum is pronounced the same in Hebrew as we are pronouncing it here in English. And it's interesting that it's um, that his name means compassionate or full of compassion, because if you read his book, there's very little compassion in there. It's pretty much just a hellfire brimstone, rare back, let her fly, open up the womb and pour in the salt and and uh, a, a doom and gloom type book. Um, so uh, I but. 
while that seems strange that his name would mean compassion or full of compassion, uh, that uh, that would be the case as he's pronouncing death and destruction on the city of Nineveh. Uh, I want to use an analogy here, remembering that Nahum was living in Judah. This would have been after Assyria had fallen and but before Judah had fallen. And so with that in mind, let me use an analogy that you would be able to understand uh, with your um, uh, knowledge of uh, world history and kind of help you see how this can be compassionate. All right. Place yourself in the country of Belgium right before World War Two starts. And you're not really sure as a nation whether you should join forces with Germany or as a nation, you should just trust God that he's going to take care of Germany. All right. Germany is rolling over countries. They're coming your direction. What's the old adage? I believe I heard Bugs Bunny say this one time. He said, if you can't beat them, join them. Right. So what are you going to do? You're going to beat them? Probably not. Hitler's rolling over people. Hitler's leaving death and carnage everywhere he goes. So do you wave the white flag of surrender and join forces? Or do you say, no, we're just going to trust in God? Maybe England could have uh, been another example of that. This is sort of where the Judeans were. In their spot with Assyria. So um, Assyria had already wiped out the ten northern tribes. And in their process of wiping out the ten northern tribes, they also ravished Jerusalem. They, they pillaged Jerusalem. While they didn't conquer Jerusalem totally, they suffered a great blow to it and took lots away from it. And so little Judah, now you know they must have been tempted to join in with them so as not to be gobbled up in war. So Nahum's letter accomplished two things. Now, these aren't going to be on the screen, but just in the introduction here, uh, Nahum's letter accomplished two things. The first thing that the letter accomplished is the obvious. It condemned the Ninevites for their idolatrous and pagan practices. So the Ninevites uh, practicing idolatry, practicing paganism, And so this uh, letter condemned the capital city of Assyria. It condemned the Ninevites. It it condemned the Assyrians. And so that's the obvious. But here's the secondary thing that it did is that the book encouraged the Israelites to rely on God and his strength. Hey, stay faithful to God. God is going to take care of Nineveh. He's going to take care of Assyria. Yes, they might flex. They might have big, strong military muscles per se. But you trust in God and he's going to take care of your enemies. And i got to say that there are plenty of Christians who look around at the world and listen. Are you like me and you ever wonder why the, the, uh, the wicked prosper? You ever wonder... How can they do so well? They're godless and they just make millions of dollars, some of them. You ever drive, uh, uh, Angela and I needed to stop uh, restroom or, or restaurant or I don't bank or something. We we're going down uh, 15 toward New York. We got to Greenwich. That's where you work. And so we got off and we ended up over by 95. So the road that takes you from 15 over to 95 through Greenwich, I mean, you've got 10 to 15 million dollar homes, right? And those people, wow, that's nuts. And some of you here do contract work, you've been in those homes. So I've seen the outside, you've seen the inside. And a lot of those people don't go to church, do they? They're godless. They're godless. Drinking parties and... 
you know, they're they're uh, secular. Um, you ever step back and go, God, how come they get the nice stuff and, you know, I'm hand to mouth. It's paycheck to paycheck. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that I don't have a major appliance in the house club because I don't know how I'm going to pay up. I'm going to pay for it. Uh, or you, you have like Brother Mark over here where you got all kinds of stuff going on. Right, Mark? And, uh, you're, you know, but the Lord takes care of us and he, he wants us to trust in him. We trust in God. They trust in money. Sometimes the heathen rage, the heathen do well. And we step back and we go, well, God, maybe I should join them since I can't we can't seem to beat them. And I would just uh, this isn't in my notes, but I think it's uh, appropriate here to say that if the wicked never get saved, their best days are here on earth. If you are saved, your worst days are here on earth. So their best doesn't come close to your best and your worst doesn't come anywhere near their worst. You've got to keep it in eternal perspective. What was Nahum doing with this letter uh, against the Ninevites? Well, he was condemning the Ninevites and their sin, but he was also encouraging the Israelites to, hey, don't become like the Ninevites. Rely on God and rely on his strength. Uh, just like our lives, each nation and world power is like an hourglass, an hourglass. The sand slowly falls through each and every nation. Each and every empire, each and every dynasty, and on a, on a personal scale, each and every life. But as a nation deviates from God and chooses evil, the sand seems to pick up speed. The sand seems to pick up speed and move through the hourglass that much more quickly. The spiritual challenge tonight is, is twofold. It's to us as a nation. It's to us as a nation. And it's to you as an individual. It's to you as an individual life, live your life and run your affairs with the concept that one day, one day will be payday between you and God. I don't know if there's anything more terrifying for me than knowing that to whom much is given, much is required. I look at some of you who were saved in, in, you know, later in life. And I don't think that. I think that God maybe is going to give you a little bit more of a pass than he is me. You say, well, why is that? Well, I was saved at four. I was in church, I think, the second week after I was born. I've been through Sunday school since I was, before I can even remember. I don't ever remember a time in my life where I didn't go to church, a gospel preaching church. was raised in the home of a minister. Uh, my dad was the real deal. He didn't uh, live one way at church and another way at home. He was who he was. And yeah, and I'm thankful for this testimony. Thankful for it. I've got a very boring salvation testimony. Some people get up and they talk about all the, the, the sex and drugs and, you know, promiscuous lifestyle they lived. And it's like, I remember when I was a little kid, I'd sit in church and go, man, my testimony's boring. I wish I had one like that. And I got to say today, I'm glad I don't. I'm glad I don't. The larger point here is that one of the thing, one of the things that keeps me going is knowing I'm going to stand before God one day. And you know the story of the man with the talents, the men with the talents, right? One had five, one had two, one had one. For those of us in the room that were raised in Sunday school in good Christian homes, we're the ones with five. We're the ones with five. Do much is given, much is required. 
You say, well, Pastor, I was saved later in life. I didn't have that opportunity. God's still going to hold you accountable for your talent. You say, well, I'll have my mom to help me through. No, you're going to stand before God alone. Well, I'll have my husband. Nope. Nope. You'll be there all by yourself. Payday. Payday. Tonight, we're going to jump into the book of Nahum, try to understand it. We're going to look at five points. You have your outline there. Five points about Nahum's prophecy as we consider and remember uh, this, uh, uh, rather we consider the reminder of payday someday. Number one, notice Nineveh's prominence. Nineveh's prominence. I'm going to read for you a verse here. The very first time we find Nineveh in the Bible, does anybody know where it is? All the way back in Genesis chapter 10. All the way back. After the flood, they get off the boat. How many remember a man by the name of Nimrod? My dad used to call me a Nimrod just to bother me. He'd say, you Nimrod. Nimrod was um, related to the individual that began this. Genesis chapter 10 verse 11 says, Out of the land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh. And the city Rehoboth and Calah. I've been to Rehoboth, but uh, here in America. Uh, Nineveh. He built Nineveh. Asher uh, uh, was, I believe, Nimrod's son. I may not have that just right. But he went and built Nineveh. So Nineveh has been around for a long time. And during Nineveh's existence, boy, did it have quite the history. Letter A, notice, political prominence. Political prominence. You can throw that uh, picture up there for me, Brother Matt. Um, They've undug the uh, architectural findings of the city of Nineveh. And they've uh, reconstructed, or rather rendered an artist. Here's an artist concept of 1853 of what it might have looked like. It was a beautiful city, wasn't it? Beautiful. I don't know that there's a place in the world that would be that pretty on earth today. Um... A sea of glass or a river of glass in front. Just gorgeous. Just gorgeous. It was, um, it was quite a place to behold. The city was built, uh, east of the Tigris River, um, on very fertile soil, lots of crops, lots of agriculture, very rich, rich agriculture, uh, from that era. Uh, the, the city of Nineveh, uh, if it was around today, it would be located in modern-day Iran, real close to where the city of Mosul. Did I say that right? Mosul, Mosul, Mosul is located, uh, was really close to there. If you go back to the book of Jonah, you find that Jonah says it took three days to walk across the city. That's a big city. That's a big city. Three whole days. Um to walk from one side to the other. And uh, I'm going to give you the population of the city. But before I do, please understand that the world's population didn't come close to a billion until just, I believe, around a century ago, maybe less. So big cities like we have today of eight, nine, ten million, they just didn't exist. In fact, to have a city up over 100,000 was miraculous. The uh, modern day water systems that we have and electric systems, they didn't have any of that stuff. The uh, the city uh, of uh, Nineveh at one point, um, according to historical records, uh, was around 120,000 people. That was a huge city. 
even by today's standards, 120,000 people is a lot is a large city. But that would that would have been equivalent to like a Mexico City today or a Beijing or uh, uh, some other city that is just gigantic in nature, maybe a Los Angeles. By secular standards, Nineveh was as prominent to Assyria as Rome would have been to, say, Italy. Uh, to say Nineveh was like, wow, you know the old saying, all roads lead to Rome? As big of a deal as Rome was during its time, uh, this would have been several empires before, uh, several, even several hundred years before. Nineveh was it. Nineveh was the capital of the world at its at its uh, peak there. So we see letter A talking about Nineveh, its political prominence. Letter B, let's look at its spiritual prominence. Its spiritual prominence. For those of you that love my alliteration, I'm sorry I let you down. But um, uh, I just didn't I didn't have that in me there. Uh, spiritual prominence. The, in the Bible, it's easy to pick sides, isn't it? Israel good, everybody else bad. Especially Old Testament history. Israel's good, and everybody else is bad. All right, uh, uh, Goliath fought with the Philistines. The uh, Israelites are good, and the Philistines are bad. The Babylonians captured the Israelites. The Babylonians are bad, and the Israelites are good. The Assyrians wiped out the Israelites. The Assyrians are bad, and the Israelites are good. But i got to tell you that while that might work for most parts, that might be a safe way to look at it uh, in a shallow Christian sense. God uh, used Nineveh uh, to accomplish His will. And Nineveh, even at times, was a spiritual place of godliness. Turn back over to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 5. We were here just a few weeks ago. And we see here that Jonah, or rather Nineveh, had a tremendous revival. Where those people converted to Judaism. Anytime in the Bible you see that a non-Jew believes in Jehovah, believes in God, they are converts into Judaism. So uh, there was a time where Nineveh was filled with the doctrines of God and uh, was filled with uh, with Jewish beliefs. Look at verse five there. It says there. So the people of Nineveh, this is after um, Jonah's five word sermon. So the people of Jonah believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them, for word came unto the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king. And his nobles said, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Uh, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hand. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Look at verse 10. And God saw their works. This is the Ninevites. That they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. So God was going to destroy Nineveh. Uh, Jonah was uh, coerced into going there, finally went and he uh, preached a very uh, short, fiery sermon. The Ninevites fell on their face. They fasted. They prayed. They turned to God. And uh, the Lord forgave them. And uh, for at least 150 years, 
uh, there would be at least 150 years between this moment and the destruction of Nineveh by the Babylonians. We'll get that more in a moment. But the, during that time, there was a generation or two that chose to live and please God. And they did such a good job of living and doing what was right that even Jesus would mention them in a positive light in the book of Matthew. If you can, turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. And we get Jesus here referencing uh, Jonah, he's called Jonas in the New Testament, and uh, Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. I'm going to begin reading. You can catch up to me when you get there. But uh, Jonah, or rather uh, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, it says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, uh, Jesus could have stopped there at the analogy of Jonah being in the belly of the well and him being in the in the earth for three days and three nights. He could have stopped there and it would have been fine. But he took this moment to reflect back on the Ninevites that had trusted and believed. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, look, carnal, old, rebellious Jonah preached a five-word sermon, and the people of Nineveh repented. I am greater than Jonah, and I'm preaching to you, and you all are ignoring it. Those who lived during the time of Jonah will stand up and condemn you, because they had Jonah, and you have me, and they believe, and you don't. You don't. So the greater point I'm trying to make here is uh, that Jonah, uh, uh, rather that Nineveh was at one point a place of spiritual prominence. Now, think of the times. Here's uh, I want to stop in all that and kind of give you what I have highlighted in my notes is a practical point. Practical point. All right. You're going, Pastor Nineveh uh, was an ancient city. What in the world does that have to do with me today? Um, uh, here's an application for you. All right. Think of the times that you have experienced prominence in your life. Think of the times where you were a big deal. You think, I've never been a big deal. At some point in your life, you've been more prominent than at others. All right? Maybe that was prominence in parenting. Maybe that's been prominence uh, in, in, on a wedding day. Maybe that's been prominence through a uh, successful growing of a ministry at church. Some of you have uh, been here for years and you have seen all kinds of successes in the Lord. Whether it's corporate at church or personal in your life, think about those prominent moments. Now, here's what I want you to remember. God allowed it. God allowed it. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. Um, now, God works through people, right? Every year we honor Pastor Brown. Came here in 1980. You all know the story. Uh, started knocking doors, started church from scratch. God allowed it. But Pastor Brown had to be willing. And God needs you to be willing. But we've got to be quick to give God the credit. So, first of all, we see Nineveh's prominence. Let's move quickly through these next four here. Uh, number two, we see the Lord's patience. The Lord's patience. Look back at Nahum chapter 1 and verse number 3. Now, most of verse 3 talks about how powerful God is. And um, Nahum has to remind us before he gets into how powerful God is that God is patient. Look here. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. I have patience written down in my Bible next to those words. Slow to anger, then that next phrase, 
and great in power. Okay, and will not all and not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So here we see that God is patient and powerful, patient and powerful. Somebody might look down on what happened like at, this, at that uh, tech, at church in Texas, First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs and say, if God's powerful, how could he let that happen? The answer is because God is patient and powerful. Trust me, people will pay in God's timing for what happens. And us expecting God to step in between a man and his free will, that's not really fair for us to do to God. Now, I want to say this about the patience of God. Look there in the verse. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Notice that next phrase. And will not at all acquit, acquit the wicked. Um, when I hear that word acquit, my mind goes back to O.J. Simpson. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. Was there anybody here that was obsessed with watching that on TV and willing to admit it? All right. Well, I guess we all, all of us that were alive saw some of that. I was a little kid. I wasn't allowed to watch very much of it, but I'd walk, I'd walk by and see my mom watching it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but that's what I think of. What's that word "acquit" mean? That word "acquit" means uh, to free someone of a criminal charge with not guilty. That's the verdict coming back and saying not guilty. So, what is Jesus? What is the Bible saying here? What is Nahum saying that while God is patient? He's not just going to say not guilty when you're guilty. Look, he knows he keeps record. Now, something about the patience of God to keep in mind is that God's level of patience. Please catch this. okay? God's level of patience is different for someone who's lost than it is for someone who is saved. If you are lost, there is a limit to God's patience toward you. You get witness to and witness to and witness to and you keep pushing that off and you're pushing away the Holy Spirit's conviction. I do believe there comes a point where God just says, "Okay, I'm done convicting you. God's patience runs out. Don't cross that line with God. Get saved. I think it is possible for someone to get to a place where they can't be saved because the Holy Spirit's done convicting them. And if the Lord's not drawing, you can't get saved. So while there's a limited amount of patience God has with the loss, there is an unlimited, there is an unlimited reservoir of patience for those that are saved. You cannot abuse the patience of God to a level where he quits dishing it out to you. You say, can you prove that? Yes. Look at the Israelites. Even in God's de- demolishing of the ten northern tribes, he's going to restore them in the millennium. Now, if after thousands of years of abusing God's grace as a nation, he's still going to restore them, I'd say that for God's people. You cannot run out of the reservoir of God's patience. Uh, so, But nonetheless, even though God is patient, that does not mean that he is not powerful. He is a perfect balance of that. Number three, notice Nineveh plundered. Nineveh plundered or Nineveh punished. While the conquering army was not specified here in Nahum as far as the prophecy of it happening. History tells us that it was the Babylonians. Now, I think the Judeans would have loved for it to have been them, but it wasn't. It wasn't them. It was the Babylonians. And the Babylonians... Okay, so you have your timeline here. The Babylonians would wipe out the Assyrians first, 
and then later would come behind and cap, capture Judah. So are you getting this put together in your mind? All right. You have the ten northern tribes. You have the two southern tribes. Assyria comes in, carries away the ten northern tribes. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. They come in, carry away the ten northern tribes. You have the two southern tribes. During that time, Nahum writes the book of Nahum, uh, talking about how that Assyria is going to get carried away. Babylon comes along and carries away Assyria. And then uh, behind that, you have Babylon who comes in and pillages and, and burns the temple, destroys the temple, and carries the Babylonians away, such as Daniel and the three Hebrew boys. That's also the time that Jeremiah prophesied to the southern kingdom. And, and uh, he would be carried away into captivity and allowed to come back. So that kind of gives you a, a timeline there of how this worked. But here Nahum is saying to the Assyrians, listen, you are going to be destroyed. And he even goes into great detail. Let's look at uh, Nahum chapter 2 here. Let's see that detail. Okay, verses 1 through 3 uh, outline for us here the front line of soldiers that would come. It says there, He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied uh, them out and marred uh, thy, uh, their vine branches. Look at verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is made red. So here we're talking about the, the linemen, the front line of soldiers. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariot shall we... Uh, be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. So, verse 1 through 3 describes that front line of soldiers. Out in front of those soldiers, that band of soldiers, you have chariots that are in the street leading the way. By the way, as we read verse 4, there are those that believe verse 4 is a prophecy about cars being invented. I don't personally see it, but I'll leave that up to you, okay? Verse 4. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. You have to be pretty loose of Scripture to get cars out of that. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, there are a lot of people that want to draw that out of there. This is talking about the chariots of the Babylonians out in front of that front line of soldiers, of those that band of soldiers that is heading toward Nineveh to take it down. Verse 5 and 6 talks about the pulling down of the wall or how they're going to come over the wall and under the wall through the water reservoir to, to take over the city. Look, look at verse 5. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the rivers shall be open, and the palace shall be dissolved. And then verse 7 and on, we won't read, but verse 7 and on go on to talk about how the city, after they enter into the walls, will be pillaged and, and, and taken over and burned and destroyed. Interestingly enough, Nahum de, uh, predicts that the city will be destroyed into ruin and that it will never be built again. Guess what? Nineveh has never been built again. Now, that's quite a bold prediction for a city that's existed all the way from Genesis chapter 10 all the way to this point. You're talking about a city that's been around for thousands of years. Nahum says, you are going to be destroyed and you're going to be finished forever. And the city of Nineveh has never been rebuilt. In fact, it still lies in ruin. So uh, it's been built. It's been built on top of now, but not as the great city of Nineveh. So there's a lot more I want you to look at here tonight. In chapter three, if you want to know how chapter two and chapter three works, 
Chapter 2 talks about the tearing down of Nineveh. Then chapter 3 gets into the tearing down of the nation of Assyria. You can study that on your own. We're going to look at a couple more things here. Number 4, notice Israel's proclaimer. Israel's proclaimer. Back in, um, back in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 15, look at that with me. And if you know your Bible really well, I want you to ask yourself this question. What verse does this remind me of? Okay, Verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings... That publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts. Perform thy vows. Uh, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Does that sound familiar to anybody? How about Isaiah chapter 52? Isaiah 52, 7 says this. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. That publisheth peace. That bringeth good tidings of good. That publisheth salvation uh, that saith in Zion, thy God reigneth. Now, I have to believe that inside of Judah, there was some hurt feelings over what the Assyrians had done to Israel. Now, while the nations were divided and while there was a, a line separating them as two sovereign countries, there had to be loved ones going way back uh, that were carried away by the Assyrians. And there had to be some fear uh, and worry about uh, this being a great enemy that would come in and take them over, much like living in Belgium and being fearful of Hitler, right? And imagine that Hitler is destroyed and somebody comes in, a town crier comes in in, in your city of Belgium and says, uh, Hitler has been taken down, we are safe, and it is good tidings. This is similar. This is similar. Nahum is telling his fellow Judeans, listen, you need not worry about the Ninevites. You need not worry about the Assyrians. One day, somebody with beautiful feet, they're going to come and stand on top of a mountain inside your city, and with good tidings, they're going to publish peace. They're going to publish peace. I'm here to tell you that Satan came in and he's wrecked havoc in this world. He's wrecked a lot of havoc in this world. He's created a whole lot of problems. And uh, there are those of us that look around in despair and wonder about sickness and pain and hurt and sorrow. And we wonder, is there any good news in the world? And listen, I want to be that that uh, town crier who stands up and says, we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And so you have a Jesus. You have a God who loves you very much. And I sure hope that you're walking with Him each and every day. To just be um, down to earth tonight, sometimes life just kind of kicks you in the gut, doesn't it? we we got a, we got a schedule that's just go, 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 go. And you, you find yourself exhausted and unable to care for the people in your life that you should love the most because you're just run down by life. You're just busy. And you, you wonder... You just sometimes things get out of perspective. I know that happens to me. Um, I shared this with my staff this morning. Last week I went up to Vermont to just get away and walk with the Lord. Uh, read my Bible and pray and plan the 2018 uh, preaching schedule. Read some books and uh, just uh, hit the reset button in some areas. Funny enough, I, I, uh, I walked into a, a little tiny Baptist church up there. I had preached in chapel at Central Baptist in Southington on my way up. My mother is the one that plans the preaching schedule, so she makes sure she gets me in as often as she can. And so I happened to have an outline in my Bible, and um, I walked into the church building, and the pastor said, I'm 70 years old. I've spent the last two days fixing a plumbing problem in my house. 
I'm exhausted. I don't know you, but can you preach? So last Wednesday night, I preached up in upstate Vermont. <laughs> I was going up there to get away from, uh, you know, the pulpit for a week, and I ended up preaching. So the Lord knows. The Lord knows. But um, what I'm getting at here, I chased a rabbit with that. What I'm getting at here is that while I was away, the Lord spoke to me about something. And not directly. God doesn't speak this directly. But in my spirit, he moved and he said, listen, a lot of people look back at their past with fond memories. And they look ahead at their future with hope. But today is miserable. Today is miserable. The Lord said this to me. He said, listen, embrace today. Embrace today. Love your kids for who they are. No, they're not exactly what you want them to be yet, but love them for who they are. Love your church right where it is right now and embrace it. Savor the moment. That doesn't mean you, you take the, the visions of grandeur and the visions of growth and, and you, you get rid of them, but rather you just enjoy right now. And I'm here today to tell you that you need to do the same thing. You need to rest in the Lord and trust Him. Number five and lastly, and we'll shut it down. Notice the Lord's process. Now here's what I want to get back to tonight is what we talked about in the introduction. Look at Nehemiah, or rather Nahum chapter 3. Look at verse 16. It says, Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The cankerworm spoileth and fleeth away. Thy crown are as the locusts, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers. Uh, which camp in the hedges in the cold day, but when the sun arise, they shall they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy no, thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the the brute of these shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom shall uh, uh, hath not thy wickedness passed continually. Um, you know, if you would have lived in Assyria, in Assyria prior to their fall, you probably would have thought, I live in the greatest country in the world, and this is going to last forever. But you know what you find? Assyria is gone. You know who conquered Assyria? I told you. Who remembers? You guys listening? You sleeping on me. Who conquered Assyria? Babylonians. Very good. Someone's awake. Anybody know where the nation of Babylon is? I mean Babylon, not Iran, Babylon. They don't exist. They're gone. Who conquered the Babylonians? Well, the Persians did. What happened to the Persians? They're gone. And then behind them came the Greeks. What happened to the Greeks? They're gone. I mean, there might be some little country called Greece tucked away where... You get your arteries all clogged, right? Is that how that works? Just making sure you're awake. How about that? Rome took them over. What happened to Rome? Well, it's just a city now. It doesn't dominate the world. Behind the Romans, you have the Byzantines and then the Ottoman Turks. And then after that, somewhere in all there, you got the United Kingdom and uh, you have the Mongolians. You have Nazi Germany. You had USSR. And guess what? They're either diminished or they're gone. They're gone. And then you come to the old U.S. of A. You know what I believe? You know what I've always believed since I was a little kid. We are, we are, uh, uh, we are indestructible. 
How many grew up believing the United States was indestructible? I mean, look, we fought two wars at the same time and we won them both. You know what that means? We're pretty awesome. That's what I grew up believing. But then I study the Bible and I see that every nation is like an hourglass. The sand's ticking through. The further it is that we get away from the Lord, the quicker the sand runs through the glass. I'm not saying America is going to cease to exist, but I can say this, our domination in the world is slowly ticking away. But how about you, Christian, as an individual? You allowing the sand of your life to run through the hourglass a little bit quicker than maybe it ought to because, you know, you're not taking care of those talents God gave you. Again, I was saved as a small boy. I'm a five-talent Christian, not because I'm talented, meaning I've just been given more to be trusted with. You may have been saved as a young adult. You may be a two-talent Christian. You may have been saved later in life. You might be a one-talent Christian, but it doesn't really matter how many talents you have. Matters what you're doing with them. You investing them? You live in your life, or are you uh, wasting that away? I'm reminded of Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, tonight God's not going to the um, the Supreme Court to check and see whether or not it's time to judge our country. He's going to the church house. The therm- the the, the the, ther- the, the thermometer is not being ran over Hollywood. It's being ran over the Christian's forehead. And so are you white hot for God? Are you walking with the Lord? Our country depends on it. Our country depends on it. Let's have our heads bowed nice close tonight. Lord, I ask tonight that you move in our hearts and help us. As we look at Nineveh, one point, such a strong, powerful city that was just ruined. Lord, may that not be. May that not be our lives, where we were one day prominent and then we chose the wrong direction. I pray, God, you'd help us take the talents that you've given us and invest them for you. May we keep our attention on you, knowing that one day, one day we're going to. Give account for our lives. Help us with that, Lord. Help us with that. Help us to wake up every morning and take one step closer to being ready for that judgment day. I pray, God, that I would husband my wife in a way that prepares her for eternity. and That she would be my wife in a way that helps me to prepare for eternity. That I would pastor this church to lead those who attend to be a little bit more ready for eternity. And may we take all those steps ourselves both here at church corporately and then individually in our lives. May we walk with you. May we spend time with you. May we follow you. Thank you, God, for your word. And a book that isn't studied and preached very often, but yet truths that can help make us better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.